we finish chapter 1 and get into chapter 2 of the book of Colossians today. So when I was in high school, there was a, a common saying throughout all of the teams that I was on, and, I, and I'm sure that most of you have uh, at least been familiar with this saying. This, the saying was, you win as a team, you lose as a team. But the teams that I was on added a little bit more to this statement. They said, you win as a team, you lose as a team, you run as a team. I don't know if anybody else was on a team that uh, you also got to run as a team. Uh, but let's be honest, there's nothing fun about enduring the consequences for a teammate's mistake. There's nothing fun about that. But the message was clear to us. It takes everyone on this team to win games or, or win whatever we were doing. Uh, when we lose, we all had a part in it. And when one person messed up, we were treated as if we all had messed up. Our teams were together in the good, they were together in the bad, and our teams needed every single member of that team to find the success that we desired. Now, this is the same message that Paul brings to the Colossian church and that God gives us through Paul today, and it will bring us to what we call our take-home truth here at Rooted, which is a, just a one statement that you can take and grab a hold of and take with you today, and that is the mission of God moves forward through the faithfulness of all Christians. The mission of God moves forward through the faithfulness of all Christians. So Paul has taken this, this letter, he's taken all of this letter so far to the Colossian church, and he has built his case to the church, letting them know who he is and, and why he has credibility. Keeping in mind here that Paul has never met the people of this church and in his life will never meet the people of this church. So we continue teasing this idea every week of, of some false teaching that was happening in the church. And again, we're going to get to it, I, I promise. But the reason that this keeps coming up now is because Paul is building his credibility to show the Colossian church that he can be trusted and he can be listened to above those false teachers that are in their midst. And so in this text, Paul is going to show us that God calls all Christians to participate in the mission of God through, through suffering for the sake of Christ and through the sharing of the good news of Jesus to those who don't yet know him so that the church would be built up and encouraged. So we get into our text. Verses 24 and 25 today tell us of the suffering of the church. The suffering of the church. Paul, multiple times at the beginning of this book, makes it very clear that he is a minister of God through the power and working of God. And he says specifically in verse 25 that, that he is a, a minister because God had given him this role for the church. This was not something that Paul sought out to do. So God chose Paul to do this. And, and so he's making it clear that he has authority to speak to the church while also remaining humble. Because most of the time we see this word minister or, or even pastor, and we have a skewed version of that. We have this view of a life of ease and a life of even privilege because of what we've twisted that into. But Paul tells us multiple times that he is a minister of God, chosen by God, and because he is a minister of God, chosen by God, he is suffering and he is afflicted. This word minister is sometimes translated to the word servant or slave. This is not Paul bragging about this life of ease of the minister, 
But he's saying that he is a servant of the church, that he is a servant or a slave of Christ. And even further, as we think about this idea of being a servant or a slave, we don't have the same view of this word as Paul does. We understand the word servant or slave in a negative sense based on our history just as a nation. But Paul, as he talks about being a minister, a servant, or a slave, he says these words, now I rejoice. Now I rejoice. So here's the thing. As challenging as it can be to minister to people, it was never meant by God to be a burden that was unbearable for us. Being a Christian and loving the people around you is not meant to bring dread or despair into your life. That's the opposite of what God meant for ministering to people. The sad thing about the world we live in today and specifically in Christianity is that so many Christians find it absolutely unbearable to minister to people. Just to, to be straightforward, there are, there, are really pretty, there's, there are a lot of miserable Christians who just absolutely dread ministering to people and, and absolutely dread loving people. And that's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. And it shows a lack of deep connection with God. It's not about it being a part of our circumstances. It's not because people have hurt us. It's because we don't have a deep connection with God. We don't view people as being created in the image of God, and so we don't desire to love them if we are not pursuing Jesus. Not only that, but a lack of joy in serving others comes about when we become more self-centered and more self-serving. When we start to see other people as a means to an end, when we see people as just people that we can get something out of, instead of seeing them as people that are in need of the love of God from us, that's when joy has left. But Paul was humble in rejoicing in his call as a minister of God because he knew how unworthy he was to be called a son of God. Paul was filled with joy. He was filled with joy in being a minister of God to the church. But he also rejoiced for a specific thing that he mentions in verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So what is this suffering? What is Paul enduring at the time? And how does Paul fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, Paul's suffering refers to the fact that as he wrote this letter to the Colossians, he was in prison. He was in prison. In, 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 other, letters that he, uh, in other letters, he wrote that he would be rejoicing over being a prisoner of Jesus. He was not a prisoner of Rome as he saw it. He was a prisoner of Jesus. Paul and the early church that we read about would consider it a privilege to suffer for the simple fact that they are followers of Jesus and they rejoice in it. And that's really what suffering in the Christian communicates. It tells us that we are truly following Jesus. Jesus told his followers, as we read in the book of John, this is going to be on the screen for you, John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, he said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus says in another place in, in Matthew chapter 10, he says that a, a disciple or a follower is not above his teacher, 
nor a servant above his master, meaning that a follower of Jesus is going to suffer in this world. This suffering causes us to know that we are following Jesus because we are not above our master. If you are a Christian today, you are not above Jesus to think that you won't suffer in the ways that he did, that the world wouldn't hate you because he hated, the world hated him. And this all seems really weird. It would be a rare occasion for us to, to, to say that our suffering is a joy in life. Any hardship we're going through would be a joy. It's hard for us to even think that we would say that. So why was suffering a cause for joy for Paul? Well, Paul recognized that his suffering was a part of a larger purpose, all in, in furthering the kingdom of God, because as followers of Jesus, the mission that we have in our lives is to live our lives like Christ and see other people place their faith in him. And so because we have this assurance through our suffering that we belong to Jesus, our pursuit of Jesus will cause more people to come to know him. And that's a joy. It's a joy to suffer in that way. So yes, rejoice in your suffering because of, the, of your faith in Christ because it's supposed to happen. It's supposed to happen. Paul continues in this, and as I read the text for this week, as I prepared for this week's sermon, this is, there's one thing in here that has given me a lot of pause and, and everybody else that I have talked to about it, a lot of pause. As Paul continues on talking about suffering, on first reading here, it's weird to see, see someone say that they are filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. At the surface... It reads as if Paul is saying that Jesus dying was not sufficient and that he now has to pick up the slack where Jesus fell short. It's what it could seem like if we just read it as it is. But this cannot possibly be the case. Paul has already written in the, in the, the verses that we covered last week about the life and death of Jesus about the fact that the life and death of Jesus was enough to reconcile us to God and be made holy before him. For Paul to turn around now and say that humans have any part of our own salvation or, make, or, or making up for Jesus coming up short would negate his entire writing so far. It would cast doubt into the minds of the Colossian believers and it would reinforce what the false teachers in the church were saying. The Bible is clear. The Bible is clear that the death of Jesus was enough to cover the sins of the whole world and the work of salvation through the work of Jesus was complete in him. So what does it mean that Paul is suffering, that in his suffering he was filling up what was lacking? Well, Paul is referring here to his own physical suffering at the, the hands of those who hated Jesus. This persecution or opposition that Paul and other Christians endured was because of Jesus. This, this had everything to do with the fact that they identified their lives with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so... In filling up what is lacking, Paul means that he was receiving persecution that was meant for Jesus himself. Jesus had died, he was resurrected, and then ascended to be in heaven with God the Father to sit at his right hand. And so since he was no longer around and was out of the reach of the people, the enemies of Jesus would turn to inflict as much pain and suffering on the followers of Jesus as possible. So again, Jesus, he promised that the world was going to hate his followers just as they hated him. And so Paul, 
he recognized that these haters of Jesus were inflicting pain and they were inflicting suffering and intended for Jesus on his followers, and he counted it a joy to fill up what was lacking in the afflictions brought about by those who opposed King Jesus. And so while we could say that this suffering is reserved only for Paul and only for the early church, this message of suffering Paul uses this same language of suffering throughout his writings when he talks Scripture today, not only as something that took place in the life of to help us understand suffering today in the church. Those of us who would claim to be followers of Jesus must be ready and we must be willing to suffer. Everything and, and to stake our lives on Jesus, the one who has saved us and the one who has promised to sustain us. Suffering happens to the church and the kingdom of God As we see in the book of Acts, it expands early in the book of Acts. So this severe suffering comes and it caused Christians to move away from where they had lived. But God turned this around and and used it. God used this suffering to send Christians to all kinds of different places in the church. It's a good thing, it's a right thing, and it's shrinking the church and the kingdom of God increasing. Verses 25 through 29 Help us to understand even more about Paul's ministry and the ministry of all Christians. Just like Paul, or just like suffering is not reserved only for Paul, the mission of God is not reserved for Paul and only Paul. The mission of God for the church is to see people come to faith in Christ through loving people and sharing the gospel with them. The mission was the same for Paul and it continues to be the same for us today and it requires that the Christian be completely devoted to seeing this mission accomplished. Completely devoted. We see the beginnings of Paul's description of the mission of the church in the end of verse 25. He says, to make the word of God fully known. This is the single thing that Paul had his focus on as his ministry given to him by God. And Paul knew that his ministry was to make the gospel known to people and and to help people understand the impact of the gospel in their everyday life. So Paul was committed. He was committed to, to fulfilling this ministry given to him by God, and that's exactly what he did. Paul was committed to doing the will of God by proclaiming the gospel to the people that God called him to. Because here's the thing, Paul did not spread himself too thin as to think that the gospel depended solely on him, that everyone around the world depended on him and him alone to reach them with the gospel. But he was faithful. He was faithful to preach the gospel to the people that God had brought him to and called him to. Paul describes the word of God, the gospel, that he was committed to making known as the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints, those saints being Christians in the church. Paul's not using this word mystery to say that God has given him something that that no one else has the ability to know. This is not some secret teaching or, or something, but it was the truth of God revealed to those who would follow him. So Paul talks of ages and generations. The, the mystery speaks to the fulfillment of Everything in the Old Testament, prophecies that were about Jesus that that came to fulfillment in the life of Jesus. These were promises that God had made to his people for, for hundreds of years about Jesus coming as the Savior of the world who would save his people from their sin. And so this mystery that was hidden was then revealed as Jesus came into the world. 
This word mystery not only talks about something that was not yet revealed to past generations, but it also refers to God including Gentile people in his plan of restoration. And so just briefly, Gentile people very quickly just means non-Jewish people, people that were not in the, the, the country of Israel and the people of Israel. Okay, so you have the Jews and the Gentiles. That's all we mean by that, Jews and non-Jews. So this mystery refers to God not only including the Israelite people, but including and bringing in the, the Gentile people in his plan. So not only was the promise of Jesus for the people of Israel, but it was for the world. And this is, this is good news. It should be good news if you don't recognize it already. Paul was a minister to these Gentile people, and through the ministry long ago, the gospel has now come to you and to me as Gentile people. And since the Gentiles were a part of God's plan of redemption through Jesus, Paul is clear to make sure that the word of God is fully known the people of Israel and all the other nations would come to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the mission of the church, to make the gospel known to all who would hear and all who would trust in God. And, and we trust in God that he will go before us and, and cause people to be ready to receive the gospel, to repent of their sin, to turn away from their sin and trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We proclaim the mystery of the gospel, which is Christ in us, which is the hope of glory. Jesus promised that once someone trusts in Christ and surrenders their life to him, the Holy Spirit will dwell in them. What Paul is saying here is the hope of glory is the hope that within us dwells the Spirit of Christ, and so we can have ultimate confidence in all that we do to advance the gospel across the world. This hope of glory, the dwelling of the Holy Spirit is in us, is what produces the joy that the Christian is able to have during hardship and during suffering, while also giving us boldness to live each day for the sake of the gospel, to make Jesus known every day of our lives. And Paul continues as he talks about the mission of the church in verses 28 and 29. And he talks about the fact that the word of God is proclaimed to present everyone mature in Christ. Now, Paul says here that we proclaim. This, this makes a change in how he's, he has been writing, going from just talking of himself and, and his ministry given to him by God, and he brings in all Christians and the mission of God for the church. See, the church, or as Paul says, we proclaim Jesus. This word proclaim, it means to publicly declare something, to publicly declare something. So the church proclaims the hope of Jesus for everyone to hear, but why? Well, the church proclaims, as Paul continues, warning everyone and teaching everyone to present them mature in Christ. And so we start by looking at who the audience of our proclaiming the gospel is. Paul says we proclaim warning and teaching everyone. So here's a little question and answer. Who is everyone? Nobody? Man, that was, that was like a softball. It's everyone, right? It wasn't a trick question, I promise. It's everyone. So when we think about the mission of God, we sometimes exclude those who have already trusted Jesus and are already following him. And it's absolutely true that that those who do not yet know Jesus, who have not yet become Christians, 
They need the gospel. People need the gospel, need to know how they can be saved from their sin, but it does not include or exclude those who are already Christians. So Paul says that we proclaim the hope of Jesus to everyone, to everyone, not a select few, but everyone. But what are we actually proclaiming? We're proclaiming the hope that Jesus can bring to hopeless people. What do I mean by hopeless people? We've all messed up. We've all fallen short from what God's standard is for us. We have brought hopelessness upon ourselves and through our sin, which is what disobedience to God is called, through that sin, we have caused separation to happen between us and God. We have caused our lives to be completely hopeless and we have earned it for ourselves. But the hope of Jesus is that before the foundations of the world, God had planned to send Jesus. God had planned to send Jesus to live an entire life of perfection when we could not. A life lived without sinning against God when we could not. And because of that perfect life and his claim that he is the son of God, the religious leaders at the time kill him. They have him killed. But... The plan was for Jesus to die all along. That Jesus would shed his blood, his perfect blood, his sinless blood to cover the sins of the whole world. And so Jesus dies and he's buried and it seems absolutely hopeless until three days later God raises him from the dead. Raises him from the dead to to secure our hope of, of eternity with God if we would receive this gospel because here's the thing. You can know that that Jesus loves you. You can know that Jesus died for you. You can know all these things. You can know that I've sinned and I need Jesus. But if you do not receive the gospel, if you do not turn away from your sin and instead trust in Christ and have faith in who he says that he is as the son of God, you still have no hope. Because we must receive the gospel. We must repent of our sin and acknowledge that we need saving. But saved from what? Because our sin has caused separation in this life apart from God, but after we die, because we all will die, we have caused separation for all of eternity. For all of eternity, we are separated from God and His wrath is poured out on our sin. But Jesus has provided us a way to return to and be reconciled to God through what He has done for us if we would Trust in him. And so we proclaim to all this good news of Jesus. We warn people, as Paul says. What we're talking about here is warning people about sin. We're warning people about the consequences of sin. Because first of all, to the one who's not yet a Christian, we warn that the path that they're on leads to a path of death. We share the good news of Jesus by warning people of the bad news of the consequence of sin. And that's death. We, we understand that we will all physically die, but the consequence of sin is spiritual death, meaning after death, if we don't trust in Christ, we will spend eternity apart from God. This is the responsibility of all followers of Jesus to proclaim Jesus to the not yet Christians so they will be warned of the coming consequence apart from trusting in Christ. But the warning does not stop as sometimes we think it does with those who are not yet Christians. There's a warning to do among Christians as well. Being a part of a church family requires that we look out for each other. And the difficult and uncomfortable part 
of this responsibility that we have as Christians for each other is that we, when there's sin dwelling in the lives of, of other Christians, we must warn one another. We must call it out in one another and warn one another what our sin can do in our lives. It is our responsibility to lovingly warn one another to turn away from sin because of the impact it has in our own lives personally and the way that it impacts our witness as a church. We must be committed to warn everyone, to warn everyone, Christians and not yet Christians, of the destruction that sin brings to our lives. Paul says we must warn everyone. We also must teach everyone. This involves informing people how to live according to the gospel of Jesus. The gospel informs how we should live and So we must teach people what the gospel is, and we must teach people what the Bible says about living holy lives in light of the gospel. This warning and this teaching, they go hand in hand together, and they make up what we call in the church discipleship. The the call and the mission of God on the church is this, to go and make disciples or followers of Jesus, of all nations, meaning everyone, So making disciples, followers of Jesus of everyone, and later Jesus says teaching those disciples, those followers of Jesus, to obey all that he has commanded. We warn by sharing the gospel and we teach by leading others along in the faith. And Paul says we do this with all wisdom. We do this with some sort of plan and some sort of strategy. We don't just think that it's going to happen on its own. We understand the people around us, and we're able to communicate warnings and teachings to everyone in a way that they can understand. That's why it's important for the people of the church to be rooted in their city, to be rooted in their city so that they know the people of the city, so that we know the needs of the city and how to best love and care for the city, how, the, how to best communicate the gospel and make disciples in our city. We warn and we teach with all wisdom so that we may present all people mature in Christ. This means that people come to faith in Christ and become Christians and then they're taught about the faith and they're helped along the way to know how to follow Jesus by more mature Christians. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Your faith is not a personal faith. It's not a personal faith. If you're a Christian, your faith was never meant to stay with you. It was never meant to be personal. The mission of the church is that Christians would become mature mature in Christ. And the more mature you are, the more you would share your faith with others and the more you would share how to follow Jesus among others. This is what Paul struggles to make happen through the power of God in him. He toils. He toils so that the people would become mature in Christ. And the reason again for the pain and struggles for this is because of the false teaching among the church. Christians must be mature in Christ, knowing what the Bible says and how to live as a follower of Jesus so that we will not be easily deceived by the teachings of the world that are counter to what the Bible teaches. And so that's how he ends this first chapter and and goes into chapter 2 of Colossians. Paul toils and struggles For maturity in the church, in the first five verses of chapter 2, continue to show us the role of the church in the lives of the people in the church. The role of the church in the lives of Christians in the church. The role for the church is to strengthen the people. To strengthen the people, to love them, 
to encourage them in all aspects of life. And Paul says that, uh, says to the church that he struggles for them and other surrounding churches, all of the people whom Paul has never met. He struggles that the church might be encouraged, that they might be knit together in love so that they might grow in their understanding of the mystery of the gospel and continue gaining all wisdom and knowledge. And there it is again, so that the church would not be led astray by false teaching that they wouldn't be led away by the teachings of this world that, that honestly sound really good, but they're not biblical. And he ends with this encouragement again that he's heard from their pastor that their faith is strong. He tells them all of this because he wants to see them continue in the way that they've started. Paul, as a pastor to their pastor, assumes some responsibility for these Colossian believers, these Colossian Christians, and that he assumes a position of spiritual guidance for them. This is the same for each local church. The local church is led by a pastor, or in our case, pastors, who love and care for the church and provide guidance for the people of the church. The pastor of the church equips the people of the church to engage in the mission of God among the people of their city. And the church as a whole loves one another well and encourages each other in pursuing Jesus. So Paul gives the church a few different areas within these final verses to show them what their role in the lives of other Christians is. Paul says again that he struggles for the church, that he loves deeply, that their hearts would be encouraged by one another, that they would be knit together in love. So we as Christians in the church must encourage one another by the way that we love them. That's why intentional honor is such a big deal for us here. Why it's an, a value of ours. We intentionally seek ways to honor people rather than making sarcastic comments and tearing one another down. This is counter to what our culture is today, showing authentic affection for people. But it is not counter to what God says of, the pe- of his people in the Bible. Our hearts are encouraged and we are knit together by how we intentionally seek out ways to honor one another. Because if I can just be honest, I've never felt encouraged by a sarcastic comment. I've never been encouraged by a sarcastic comment. I've never felt knit together with someone who just continually jokes with me and never has an encouraging thing to say to me. This is not to be so in the church of Jesus Christ. We must encourage one another and honor one another and be knit together in love. And Paul continues and tells us to be anchored in the truth together. We've, tre- we've talked about this already, but Paul says again how, it, how important it is to gather as the people of the church to be grounded in the truth of the gospel so that there is no deception that happens in the church. And this only happens, as Paul says, through a deep understanding and knowledge of the gospel. This only happens through personal, real relationship with Jesus. The more you know Jesus and love Jesus, the more you're going to understand the mystery of the gospel. And the less likely we will fall into the deception of false teaching. And so the role of the church is this, that we as members of the church, Christians, would be encouraged and built up in the faith into a deeper relationship with Jesus and with each other. And through a deeper relationship with Jesus, the Christian in the church would become burdened and passionate about the mission of God. And that really just brings us back to our take-home truth today, and that is the mission of God moves forward through the faithfulness of all Christians. 
The mission of God moves forward through the faithfulness of all Christians. And so as we prepare to respond, I want to give you, put, put forward to you two questions. First of all, has God made the gospel known to you? Has the gospel been made known to you? I will tell you today, it, it has been made known to you. The good news of Jesus has been made known to you today. And so, if you are not a Christian today, if you have never trusted in this saving work of Jesus for you, would you receive the gospel today? That's the only way that you are called to respond by God today, is by receiving the gospel, by beginning your relationship with Jesus so that he might save you, so that you might live with him now and for all eternity. Has the gospel been made known to you in a way that you have received it? If so, Christian, are you taking part in the mission? Are you taking part in the mission? Are you currently involved in the lives of other people and sharing the gospel with other people? Are you currently, Christian, taking part in the mission in the way that you are inviting people in? And not just inviting people to this church, but more importantly, inviting people into relationship with Jesus. Because here's the deal. Rooted Community Church may exist for the next 500 years or the next 10 years, but the gospel will exist forever. And so whether you are here next week or you are somewhere else, the gospel does not change. Christian, are you taking part in the mission and making sure you're inviting people into the family of God? And are you inviting them to worship with you and your church? Because that is secondary. Are you taking part in the mission by being in a discipling relationship with someone? What I mean by that is consistently meeting with someone to, to know Jesus more, to get questions answered, to know what the Bible says about life for you. Are you, are you in relationship with people that you can gather on a consistent basis to know Jesus more? And if not, I want you to understand today that I can speak for myself and many in this room that we are willing to do so. Like, I'm giving you permission right after we get done today. If you go, I need that in my life, if you will come to me, we will figure it out and meet together. So please understand that, that if you are lacking discipleship in your life, we have people that are ready to meet with you. Are you taking part in the mission by joining a rooted community group? By, by taking that next step of being involved in our church, to getting to know the people of our church and to loving Jesus more together. Finally, are you taking part in the mission of the church by encouraging someone? Because that's possibly a step you need to take today. Because you may realize that, like I did a few years ago, that I was full of sarcasm and I was not full of encouragement. And the Lord revealed that in my life. That's why this is a big deal to us, that we would honor one another. So are you taking part in the mission of the church by honoring one another and encouraging one another? Those are your two questions today. Has God made the gospel known to you and are you taking part in the mission of the church? God, we come before you just asking God that you would continue to work and move in a mighty way in our presence. God, we pray 
We pray that during this time of response, you would help us to respond rightly. You would help us to be courageous and bold enough to say, God, you are calling me to do something, and now I'm going to take that step. God, give us, give us ears to hear you. Um, yeah, God, just help us uh, as we respond. In Jesus' name, amen.